Welcome to the Bible Teachers, featuring sermons from around Australia. And here is today's presenter, Dr. Robert Granger. The theme for my sermon this morning is actually derived from a passage in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11, where we are admonished not to be ignorant of Satan's devices, lest he should get an advantage of us. And so to go along with that passage, I have entitled my sermon today, Our Only Safety. I think you'd all agree that uh, we're living in fairly turbulent and and perilous and uh, somewhat uncertain times, are we not? We just seem to see evil at, at every turn. We see the unmitigated evil that is being perpetrated on innocent victims around the globe due to uh, barbarous acts of radicalised religion. And I believe that we are seeing what uh, is found there in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 1, those four angels holding the four winds. And I believe that little bit by little bit the angels are loosening their grasp on those winds, that, that mantle of mercy that's covered this earth for so many years is slowly being as it were, withdrawn from the earth, and we're seeing Satan's way becoming fully manifest. And it reminds me of a passage in the book of Proverbs where I think King Solomon would see the full realisation, perhaps, of the very thing that he penned many thousands of years ago, where it says in chapter 4 and verse 16, it says, "'For they do not sleep unless they have done evil.'" And their sleep is taken away unless they make someone fall, for they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. Such is the world in which we currently live. Our legislators here in this country and abroad are making decisions that I believe uh, are sometimes based more on uh, the principles in the kingdom of, of darkness and of Satan than of light and of God. And evil in our own midst, our own selves, in our own homes is often very openly embraced and welcomed as we entertain ourselves with online and television programming. I see a book going to be released tomorrow around the planet, another Harry Potter book, Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. It's like, does that really have a role to play in the Christian home? And I would say absolutely none. Friends, we're not to be ignorant of Satan's devices lest he should gain an advantage of us. Now, I want to make sure this morning that, um, that, that the real impact and the real main point of the sermon is not lost by everything else that's said. So I'm actually going to give you the, the conclusion, the body and the conclusion first, and then we'll sort of make our way through and wrap up again. But this is it, and this is the main point that I want to say, and it's simply this, that our only safety is implicitly trusting the Word of God. That's our only safety. That's it. That's it. I mean, the psalmist said it a a slightly different way where he said that thy word have I hid in mine what? Heart, that I might not sin against thee. Psalms 119 verse 11. I'm going to be sharing a number of scriptures this morning and I'm also going to share a number of statements that have been penned by Ellen White in that sort of that collective uh, set of writings that we refer to as the spirit of prophecy. And in fact, on that point, let me share one of her statements right now. 
that we can overcome only by believing in every word that proceedeth from the mouth of God. We must know what is written in order that we may not be defeated by the sophistry and enchantments of Satan. If we have been ensnared by his enchanting power, let us in the name of Jesus rebuke his power and break with Satan without delay. Those who cry unto God for deliverance from the terrible spell that Satan would weave about them will set a high estimate upon the scriptures. Our only safety is in receiving the whole Bible, not taking merely detached portions, but believing the whole truth. Your feet are upon sliding sand if you depreciate one word that is written. The Bible is a divine communication and is as verily a message to the soul as though a voice from heaven were heard speaking to us. With what awe and reverence and humiliation should we come to the the searching of the scriptures that we may learn of eternal realities. Let everyone study the Bible, knowing that the word of God is as enduring as the eternal throne. And if you come to the study of the scriptures in humility, with earnest prayer for guidance, angels of God will open to you its living realities. And if you cherish the precepts of truth, they will be to you as a wall of fire against the temptations, delusions and enchantments of Satan. You probably appreciate, even from your own experience, that Satan respects no rules, no etiquette, absolutely no morals, and he will attempt to gain the mastery in our lives by any conceivable method, whether that's by stealth, by force, by subterfuge, by deception or cunning. He doesn't care. It doesn't matter to him. Anything that separates us from a vital connection with God is the only thing that he's really interested in. And he has warped the thinking of the earth's inhabitants to believe that, well, not only that there's no God, but therefore there is no devil. Another passage, this time taken from the Great Controversy, says this, None are in greater danger from the influence of evil spirits than those who, notwithstanding the direct and ample testimony of the Scriptures, deny the existence and agency of the devil and his angels. So long as we are ignorant of their wiles, they have almost inconceivable advantage. Many give heed to their suggestions while they suppose themselves to be following the dictates of their own wisdom. This is why, as we approach the close of time, when Satan is to work with greatest power to deceive and destroy, he spreads everywhere the belief that he does not exist. It is his policy to conceal himself and his manner of working. And so he wreaks havoc, not only with the world out there, but he wreaks havoc within the Christian community. It's quite an amazing thing that there's a large percentage of Christians who, for example, may believe that there is a God, but there is not a creator God. That is, they believe and embrace evolution as an explanation of our origins. It's an incredible thing, but it's true. Now, um, it's a slight aside, I realise, from the theme of this morning, but I, I mention it just simply to illustrate just the ways in which we can so easily deviate from the very revealed, plain, no mistaking 
Word of God. And it's when I came across a, a book a few years ago, and it's written by a gentleman by the name of Francis Collins. And the name of the book was called The Language of God. A very interesting read, for sure, but also a very, very interesting author. You may not be familiar with the name Francis Collins, but he's actually a very, very eminent individual in, uh, around the globe and, in fact, uh, certainly within the U.S., he actually was, a, uh, was an atheist who turned to embrace uh, Christianity, in particular became an evangelical Christian. And he just happens to be one of the most accomplished scientists of our time. He directed the Human Genome Project where uh, all the genes of the human body were mapped. Uh, he's a geneticist by training and by profession. And he was appointed by President Obama to be the director of the National Institutes of Health in America. This is no small player, bright mind, big mind, um, at what I believe is to be a very nice gentleman. Um, but he's nonetheless now the, uh, seen as the chief scientist in the USA. In amongst his embracing of Christianity... He obviously still had difficulties with the whole concept of God creating all things. And so he imbibed a, uh, what we would know as, as a form of theistic evolution. That is where God may have given us a few building blocks to begin with, but the evolutionary process has basically brought about all what we see and taste and see and touch, etc. And out, whatever is out there in the universe, all of this has come about by this evolutionary process, by those few little things that God may have introduced in the universe at the beginning. Now, he calls it a slightly different thing. He has given a, uh, a, a term to this, and he makes reference to it as biologos. That's the kind of brand name he's given to it. Bio meaning life and logos meaning word. And that's the way that he kind of has, has taked his, taken his, uh, his thinking on the subject of, of creation versus evolution. And I want to read to you a paragraph that comes from that book, The Language of God. And this is the paragraph. It says, Over the past century, however, the term creationist has been hijacked to apply to a very specific subset of such believers specifically those who insist on a literal reading of Genesis 1 and 2 to describe the creation of the universe and the formation of life on earth. Now, that's me. I take Genesis 1 and 2 in a literal way. Now, it says that the most extreme version of this view, okay, the most extreme version of this view generally referred to as young earth creationism, interprets the six days of creation as literal 24-hour days and concludes that the earth must be less than 10,000 years old. That's me again. Young earth creationism advocates also believe that all species were created by individual acts of divine creation and that Adam and Eve were historical figures created by God from dust in the Garden of Eden and not descended from other creatures. It's like, well, no, no, that's me. I'm in the extreme view. That's, that's me. And you know what? I kind of hope that you all fit into that category 
But you know what? I mean, if you happen to think otherwise, it's between you and, and, and your creator, but th- that's the way that I think and believe. So when I read this in, in this book, it just so sort of got under my skin. I thought, you know, I'd, I'd just love to share with him maybe a view that he could have been introduced to. May, you know, he may have, may have not, I don't know. But I'd love to somehow make contact with this very eminent scientist. So I thought, there's a really good chance that if I approach one of my friends, uh, I'd probably be able to figure out how to make contact with him. So I sat down and had a chat with, uh, with my friend Google. And, and I did a bit of searching. And I came up with what I thought looked like a pretty convincing email address for Francis Collins. So I thought, well, here we go. I'm going to write something. There was, there was nothing malicious, there was nothing angry, there was nothing like that about what I said. I just simply wanted to share what was on my heart that, you know, the Hebrew usage of that, you know, where it says 24 hours, it really did mean 24 hours in the Hebrew language and, you know, this argument and that argument and shared this with him. Thought, okay, great, this has all gone off to some cyberspace hole where I'll never hear from anything again. Well, lo and behold... It wasn't all that long later I get a response from Dr. Francis Collins. Here's this eminent scientist looking after a multi-billion dollar budget and he writes back to a nobody in Australia. Straight away, he chalked up a few brownie points in my view. And this is a part of his response to my email. I understand the strong belief you have adopted in a literal interpretation of Genesis 1, but please consider the possibility that those awesome verses of Scripture might have other meanings, as many sincere believers have thought long before Darwin appeared. I'd encourage you, if you are willing, to look at a few sources that will show how Genesis can be taken with the greatest seriousness, but scientific conclusions about the age of the earth and the relatedness of living things can also be true. Nice gentleman, but I disagree. This is one of those things where we are not placing our only safety in receiving the whole Bible, nor taking uh, the entire Bible, but rather detaching portions and believing those few segments. Please turn in your scriptures with me to the book of John, Gospel, the Gospel of John. John chapter 10 and verse 1. Remember what we are speaking about this morning is Satan not gaining an advantage of us by us not being ignorant of his devices and learning to implicitly trust upon the word of God. That's the theme for this morning. John chapter 10 and verse 1 says this. Most assuredly I say to you, He who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs up some other way, the same is a thief and a robber. Now, I realise that this could be made reference to speak of us, but I also like to think of it as speaking with Satan, because about Satan, because this is exactly how he has treated this world. It's how he has treated God's kingdom. It's how he is treating our body temple. He doesn't respect it, and he doesn't mind entering in through whatever method. Satan is the ultimate robber, the ultimate thief. And let me illustrate 
by sharing with you a true story that appeared in the last, uh, that happened in the last decade, uh, in, in the 2000s. You'd be familiar that, uh, with the fact that diamonds are very valuable pieces of commodities, and in fact they're probably the most valuable commodity known to man by weight uh, because of their small size, their incredible value, and their liquidity. Diamonds are probably considered one of the most coveted forms of wealth in the world. Maybe what you didn't realise was that approximately 80% of diamonds, the volume of diamonds out there in the world, approximately 80% are traded in Belgium, in Antwerp, Belgium, there in Europe. Within Antwerp is the very high security district known as the Diamond District and probably is one of the most secure square miles on the planet. And right there in the heart of the Diamond District is this multi-storey building known as the Diamond Centre. And for those who trade in diamonds, the Diamond Centre is as well known to them as something like, whatever, the Eiffel Tower or the White House or the Sydney Opera House is to most other people. The building is... Uh, the, the entrances are sealed with heavy rolling metal barriers covering lock plate glass doors. There is closed-circuit television within all the corridors and the entry exit points of the building as well as to the area where the vault is. There are cameras monitoring the outside streets and just around the corner from the Diamond Centre is a police station where you have heavily guarded policemen who monitor the, what's happening on the, uh, the closed-circuit television sets. There are those retractable vehicle barriers that can pop up in the streets everywhere to maybe stop a getaway vehicle. And then you finally come down into the vault, and it's an impressive vault. And in fact, the door of the vault is a marvel of engineering. It's a foot-thick, bomb-proof door. It has a combination dial capable of roughly 100 million combinations. It has a keyed lock as well. It's also got this grate across that covers it with further locking systems. There is a seismic, center, a seismic sensor. There is a magnetic sensor. There are more security cameras right there. And then finally, if you were able to get into the vault, you're met with a light sensor, a motion sensor, a heat sensor, more security cameras... The individual little lock boxes have got combination locks on them as well as a key. And yet somehow, back in February 2003, all of those security measures were bypassed by thieves who took off with hundreds of millions of dollars worth of loot. To date... I believe it remains the world's largest diamond heist. There was a little bit of sloppy stuff that was happening with these thieves. For example, one of them half ate a sandwich and threw it in the bin. They ended up extracting DNA off that half-eaten sandwich to help to track down these men, where they tracked them down, they caught them, they tried them, they prosecuted them, convicted them, they went into prison, and now they are free. And the stolen goods have never been recovered. How could this possibly have happened? It certainly wasn't after a few weeks or months of planning and preparation. 
Let me assure you that, in fact, it was literally years in the planning, and we know it was the case because the, the head thief, a fellow, an Italian by the name of Nota Batalo, had rented an office in the Diamond Centre. And he had rented that office not to conduct any legitimate business because he never did, never conducted a single bit of business out of his office. His only purpose was to occupy the building so that he could case out the security. That's all that he did. All day, every day, in subtle ways, he was casing out the weak points in their secure, what they thought was a secure building. He scrutinised every point of security and then tried to figure out how he could counter it. He drew on other expert thieves to help in the heist and their strategy was not one of violence, it was going to be one of intelligence. And he cased out the centre, noting numerous defects in their security and then taking advantage of them. For example, the closed-circuit television wasn't relying on digital methods that it could have and should have. Instead, they relied on those old, outdated video cassettes. The motion detectors used older technology that was rendered insensitive within seconds. Nota Bartolo saw that the staff within the centre had become dangerously complacent about security. The centre had never been robbed. They behaved as though the centre would never be robbed and that their secure status would remain that way forever. They trusted in the security of the district and in the building in which they were located. They trusted that this massive and impressive vault would withstand anything hurled against it. But it turned out, for example, that the combination lock, that one with 100 million possible combinations, after a while they got lazy. Why should we come down here each morning on opening the vault and go through the process of back and forward and back and forward? Let's just turn it back a few notches. Have you ever had one of those little combination locks to lock your bicycle up? I used to do this. It's got maybe got four numbers on it. And after a while you think, hey, you know, why should I twiggle with those four numbers? Let me just turn the one number and bring it back to just that one number. And that makes life easy for me. Well, that's exactly what they did here. Made, it, made life easy for themselves. The key that was a part of the external grate and the external door to the vault, they kept the key for that in a flimsy little cupboard just around the corner that was locked up by a simple little padlock. Another one, the magnetic sensor that was on the vault door. No worries, we'll just unbolt that and lift that whole mechanism off. Easy. The appearance of security. Satan takes advantage of our lax security. We feel that there is security to be had by coming along to church each Sabbath, by mingling with like-minded brothers and sisters at church, or because we happen to have a Bible sitting in the home, or we might have you know, those volumes of the Spirit of Prophecy on, on our bookshelves, or we're eating the right thing, or that we're paying our tithe, and we think that we're secure because we do all of these things. And Satan takes advantage but hey, hold on, I have my morning worship, so I, I pray. Can Satan take advantage of even those circumstances? 
I want you to please come with me to Colossians chapter 3 because there is something that Satan knows about us that often we uh, tend to forget about. And Satan knows this all too well. Take a look at this with me, please. Colossians chapter 3. And could I make an, an encouraging or have an encouraging word for those of you who are in the habit of maybe not bringing a Bible along to church each Sabbath, can I encourage you to please do so, even if it's on a, a digital device, whatever it is. Please have your, your scriptures with you at the very least. God will bless you during this time as, you, as, you read through, as we read through scriptures together. Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Satan knows very well that the human life that is hid with Christ in God is impenetrable. The human life that is hid with Christ in God is assured of salvation. This is exactly what these verses say. And so Satan has made his life work. It's an intense study, just like Nodabatolo in that diamond center. He made his work over about a two and a half year period studying all the movements, studying the security measures, studying everything out, noting it all down. Satan does exactly the same thing with our lives. He has studied human behavior and habits and he takes advantage of our weaknesses and our past failures. He takes advantage of our ill health. He takes advantage of our successes, our culture, our popularity, our physique, our personality, our heritage, our predispositions, our occupations. He takes advantage of our academic degrees or, or other notable achievements. And he identifies, he exploits, and he builds upon every weakness in our defense system. He ensures that we are kept busy. Too busy to spend time with God. Too busy to pray. Too busy to share with others. He studies our every move. He has in place numerous countermeasures. I used to play chess when I was younger. I've never played against a grand chess master, but they are absolutely formidable, and they are approximately 20 moves ahead of their opponent. They calculate out, if he does this, I'll do this. If he does that, I'll do that. If he does that one, I'll do that one. Satan is constantly ahead of us. We'll never win against him, as we will see, if all that we do is figure out that we are going to do this with the tools that are within humanity. It's not going to work. It absolutely is not going to work and will be taken down every time. He knows that our, that our habits of lifestyle can weaken our resolve. He knows that what we eat and what we drink can give him access to our brains and, and to our minds. I don't know if you're familiar, but there's this... Uh, there's this feature of one's um, anatomy and physiology called the blood-brain barrier. And I'm very thankful for the blood-brain barrier. Some of you may not be aware of it, but for example, in our, our vascular system in the rest of our body, the internal lining of the blood vessels is made up of these flattened cells called endothelial cells. These endothelial cells in the rest of our body have just got a very loose connection one to another. 
And as a consequence of that loose connection, you can have things like toxins and bacteria and, and viruses and fluid, etc., that can leak out. And by and large, you know, that can be a good thing, I mean, minus the bad stuff, but you kind of want the blood vessels to be leaky. That's effectively how a lot of the process works in our body, but you don't want that happening in the brain. In the brain, those endothelial cells, instead of being loosely connected with each, with each other, they are connected by what we call tight junctions. And as a consequence, thankfully, bacteria, viruses, by and large, cannot penetrate through the wall, or the internal part of the wall of those blood vessels. Most toxins, most medications will not penetrate through that wall. And again, I'm thankful for that. There are certain things that very easily cross the blood-brain barrier. Um, alcohol is one, for example, easily passes through. Another one is caffeine, easily goes through. You know, the ultimate drug, the ultimate drug that penetrates the brain, and it's in fact not a drug, I'm calling it quote-unquote a drug, and in fact it doesn't even go in blood vessels, of course. It's not subject to the blood-brain barrier, but I'm just using this as a little bit of an illustration. The ultimate drug that easily, that most easily penetrates our brain is music. Music bypasses the governing and executive powers of the frontal lobe. And is it any wonder that Satan uses this to his advantage in wreaking havoc in the world and also in the church? And while Satan seemingly has access to every nook and cranny of our lives, there is one thing that he is not permitted to do with respect to our minds. Satan does not have permission to read our thoughts. Now, we, there, is, there is scriptural evidence, I mean, that's very silent on that issue with respect to Satan, but I tell you what, there's a lot said in scripture about God reading our thoughts. And I am so thankful for that because I, I've got to share with you that there are times where I, something is, is, um, is so pressing upon me and, and, and weighs me down so much I, I don't want to give utterance to it, to anybody. Because I know that in so doing, Satan then hears that and he takes advantage of that situation. And there are times where I just want to keep it between my mind and the mind of God. And I just have this prayer, my lips won't move, I won't verbalise it, sorry God, uh, not, I'm sorry everyone else, but uh, God, this is just between you and me. I don't want Satan taking advantage. But fortunately, or, or unfortunately, as the, the case may be, we often wear our thoughts on our face. And after many years of uh, seeing me on, on an almost daily basis, my wife Darlene has become disturbingly accurate in her observations of what I'm thinking. Sometimes she calls it wrong. Uh, most often she gets it right. And indeed there is, a, there is an emerging field in, in psychology uh, where they are studying and doing it very successfully, learning to read people's minds by studying very carefully their facial expressions. 
because there are some facial expressions that can only occur involuntarily. Most of the movements are voluntary movements. You smile, you frown, and you use various muscles in so doing, but there are certain expressions that can only come in an involuntary capacity, and they have studied this across various cultures and language groups, and it doesn't matter where you are on the planet, you have a certain expression like that, and this is what it means. But the face is not just a reflection of what is going on in our mind. Uh, it's, and it's quite interesting that facial expressions themselves can have this retrograde influence and actually impact upon our, our moods and on, on our mind. So, for example, if you're feeling a little bit down and out and you force yourself to have a smile, it's amazing how powerful that can be in actually elevating your mood and vice versa. So the question I have for you is that uh, if Darlene does so well at reading my mind, imagine what the devil is capable of achieving. Let me read to you another couple of statements uh, from Ellen White. Here's one. Satan cannot read our thoughts, but he can see our actions, hear our words, and from his long knowledge of the human family... He can shape his temptations to take advantage of our weak points of character. And how often do we let him into the secret of how he may obtain the victory over us? Oh, that we might control our words and actions. Another statement. The adversary of souls is not permitted to read the thoughts of men, but he is a keen observer and he marks the words. He takes account of actions and skillfully adapts his temptations to meet the cases of those who place themselves in his power. If we would labor to repress sinful thoughts and feelings, giving them no expression in words or actions, Satan would be defeated, for he could not prepare his specious temptations to meet the case. But how often do professed Christians, by their lack of self-control, open the door to the adversary of souls? You know, there is no question that Satan makes sin appear attractive. In fact, more than that, Satan makes sin appear needful and essential. And after a while, sin assumes an air of normality. What might have been sin to you at one stage then just becomes a wash after a while and what at one point you may have called evil, now you would in fact call good. It even comes to the point, and and Paul says this in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2. This, this This is how Paul says it. It's absolutely incredible. 1 Timothy 4 and verse 2 says this. He said, uh, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Now that word for seared comes from a Greek word, if I had thought to put it up on the screen, uh, the Greek word katharyadzo. Now if I was to spell this word out for you uh, in, and take the Greek letters and turn them into the English equivalent, the word would be spelled K A. Okay, track this one. K-A-U-T-E-R-I-A-Z-O. Kauteriadzo. Now, if I was to maybe get rid of the K and change it into a C, now what's that word going to be? 
C-A-U-T-E, what is it? Cauterize. That's exactly what it is, that, uh, that one's conscience becomes cauterized. Now, I use a cauterizing machine in surgery all the time. I, I need it to stop the bleeding. As a junior doctor, I had the opportunity of not being involved in but observing a number of brain surgeries, whether you'd remove a, a part of the, uh, the cranium, you'd cut through the outer layers that cover the brain called the meninges, and it exposes the brain. The brain has got this consistency of like a firm jelly. And uh, the interesting thing is that the brain itself has no pain receptors, which is the reason why you can have someone wide awake while they're having brain surgery, and you can ask the, uh, the patient, uh, just tell me what you're seeing at the moment, or can you please wiggle your toe for me, and I want to what have you over here. And that can happen. Sure, the meninges will feel the pain, the blood vessels will feel the pain, but the brain parenchyma, the brain tissue itself, feels no pain. And when I do surgeries, thankfully, most people want local anaesthetic injected so that it dulls the pain for them. I get the occasional patient who says, I don't want any local anaesthetic. To which I say, well, then you'll have to ask someone else to do the surgery because I feel uncomfortable not giving you anaesthetic for such a procedure. Somehow, Satan cauterizes our minds. He cauterizes the conscience. He sears it with a hot iron, so it, in effect rendering it insensitive to the voice of God and the Holy Spirit speaking to you. How, how does this happen? How could one's conscience become cauterized? There is one simple process, and I know that you could finish the statement for me. By beholding, we become changed. God uses that to his advantage and Satan uses that to his. Listen to, and I want to run a few statements here past you, again taken from the spirit of prophecy. Listen to this. The mind of a man or woman does not come down in a moment from purity and holiness to depravity, corruption and crime. It takes time to transform the human to the divine or to degrade those formed in the image of God to the brutal or the satanic. By beholding, we become changed. Though formed in the image of his maker, man can so educate his mind that sin which he once loathed will become pleasant to him. As he ceases to watch and pray, he ceases to guard the citadel, the heart, and engages in sin and crime. The mind is debased and it is impossible to elevate it from corruption while it is being educated to enslave the moral and intellectual powers and bring them in subjection to grosser passions. Constant war against the carnal mind must be maintained and we must be aided by the refining influence of the grace of God which will attract the mind upward and habituate it to meditate upon pure and holy things. Another statement says this, I wish all could see as I have seen the sharp, keen, persevering workings of Satan to tempt and to deceive. His vigilance never relaxes. He has ready access to souls because they are not attentive to, the, to heed the warnings God has given them. 
So many invite the enemy to tempt them. They walk so carelessly that they become an easy prey. They throw wide open the citadel of the soul and invite his entrance, place themselves in circumstance, circumstances where they will be entrapped. Another statement says this, those who would not fall a prey to Satan's devices must guard well the avenues of the soul. What are the avenues of the soul? That's our senses. They must avoid reading, seeing or hearing that which will suggest impure thoughts. The mind must not be left to dwell at random upon every subject that the enemy of souls may suggest. The heart must be faithfully sentineled or evils within will awaken evils without will awaken evils within and the soul will wander in darkness. Gird up the loins of your mind, Peter wrote. Be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Not fashioning yourselves according to the form, alas, in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And look at this statement here. It's absolutely incredible. If we neglect to fortify a single weak point in our character, how many weak points? a single weak point in our character, Satan will assail us at that point with his temptations. He is constantly ruining, sorry, he is constantly plotting the ruin of the soul and he will take every advantage of our careless security. I would like to conclude by comparing three passages of Scripture this morning, and I'd really love it if you could turn there with me because there is a a blessing to be had in reading from the Word of God. Please come with me to Hebrews chapter 4, and let's look at verse 12. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. We're going to go from Hebrews to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and then finally to Ephesians chapter 6. So Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 says this, an incredible Incredible verse, absolutely powerful. This is what it says. For the word of God is living and powerful. Now, we might get the impression that this is the word of God. Here it is. It's printed on on paper. There it is. You've got it right on your iPad or on your iPhone or whatever device you have. There it is. That's the word of God. Uh, No, it's not. It's beyond that. This is why it says that the word of God is living. Nothing here is living about that. Nothing at all. The word of God is living. It's not until it is imbibed in one's soul. It becomes a part of every nerve and every fiber of our being that the word of God really then transforms. The word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any scalpel blade that I've ever lifted up, sharper than any laser scalpel blade that they now use out there. The word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit. I've never seen a blade do that. I've never seen a blade do that. And it divides, it says, the joints and the marrow. The word marrow, the Greek word from which we now get the word marrow here, this is the only time it's used in the entire New Testament. This Greek word that we see as marrow. 
What is marrow? Where is marrow? It's in the bones. What happens in marrow? It's the production of life. Red blood cells, the components of our immune system, comes from the marrow. There's some incredible deep meanings to be had just from a a word study of that word marrow. And the word of God, it says, is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. I've seen nothing like it except the word of God that can do this. Please come with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. An amazing, an amazing few verses here, again from Paul. And I believe that it's a parallel passage to what we just read in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. It uses different language, different thoughts, but it's really saying effectively the same thing as is the next passage in Ephesians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, and that's, that's us, we, this, you know, we, we're flesh, we're blood, bone, flesh, this is us, we walk in the flesh, but we do not war according to the flesh. And this is what I was saying a little earlier, that you know, if we attempt to go ahead and, and gain the victory over Satan with just what is innately in the human being, we will fall prey every single time. It says, though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not fleshly. They've got nothing to do with us. The weapons of our warfare have everything to do with God. They're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. And in particular, I believe that we're dealing here with the Word of God. It is the Word of God that is mighty in pulling down strongholds. It's the Word of God that's going to cast down arguments. The Word of God that casts down every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. It is the Word of God that brings every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. You know, it's an amazing thing that uh, we as Seventh-day Adventists, we still haggle, you know, can one achieve victory over sin? It's like, well, hold on, how do we understand this, that God wants us to have every thought brought into the obedience of Christ? It becomes captive to Jesus Christ. Not most thoughts, not the majority, every thought brought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Come over to Ephesians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Okay, so here we're in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6, and let's take a look at verse 10. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10, another parallel passage to the two that we've just read. Finally, my brethren... Be strong in the Lord in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace above all taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit 
which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Dear friends, we have got every confidence as we place ourselves in the hands of God that God will see us through. Friends, our only safety is in implicitly trusting the word of God. That's all that we've got. There is nothing, nothing else. Everything else is vanity. Everything else is foolishness. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace that has been so amply shed upon our lives, gifted to us in such a, a marvellous and remarkable way. And Lord, we, we pray this morning that we will be the recipients of that grace as we reach out to have that vital connection with you. Thank you, dear God, for um, Bunbury Adventist Church, um, brothers and sisters in Christ who so keenly wish to experience that grace, that vital connection, and ultimately that uh, saved relationship with you in a physical way in heaven for an eternity. Please, Lord, give us insights into all that we need to do in our lives in order to have that connection with you and to maintain it. We pray in your precious name. Amen. If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABN Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 612-4973-3456. Our email address is radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au. That is radio at the number 3abn Australia, all one word, .org.au. Our postal address is 3abn Australia Inc., P.O. Box 752, Morissette, New South Wales, 2264 Australia. Thank you for your prayers and financial support. We hope you enjoy the short presentation on the history of the Reformation from lineagejourney.com. In the 7th century, Iona was a well-equipped university. It was making a huge impact both here in the British Isles and further afield. England as a country did not exist then. It was split into different regions or areas. And the local king, King Oswald of Northumbria, sent a message to Iona requesting that a missionary be sent here. Aidan, who had been trained in Iona, was sent down here and when he arrived, he requested of the king if he could set up his training school here on the island of Lindisfarne. Lindisfarne lies 235 miles from Iona, which if traveled by foot would take over a week. It is also known as the Holy Island, though it's not completely isolated from the mainland. It's a tidal island approximately 1,000 acres, three miles long and 1.5 miles wide, and twice a day when the tide comes in, the island is isolated. 
There is something about the solitude and isolation of being on an island that these early missionaries seemed to value, a place to come aside, rest, study, and be equipped for mission service. Aidan was well-balanced in character. He was strong in religious fervor. He was very industrious, and it was said that he was never idle. In him was that living flame which burned so strong in many of the missionaries that were sent out by Patrick and Columba. He was deeply concerned for the poor and spent much of his life in an effort of ransoming slaves. You see, he had a very practical faith. He did for England what Columba had done for Scotland. In establishing the training centre here, the fields were used to give work to support the students. They also established other training centres in places like Melrose and Whitby. Aidan was succeeded by Finnan, and he established a training centre in Tilbury in Essex and was instrumental in evangelising central England. Finnan was succeeded by Coleman. And in 30 years, these three men did a powerful work here in England, and paganism was swept away and replaced by New Testament religion. These great men were not monks, as we would understand today, but missionaries maintaining the faith that they had learned on Iona. In Truth Triumphant, page 127, it reads, It is no exaggeration to say that with the exception of Kent and Sussex, the whole English race received the foundation of their faith from Celtic missionaries. You see, in 30 years, these men took the gospel to the country of England, and almost three quarters was won by their missionary work. They did this in an age where they had no internet, no TVs, no modern forms of communication that we have. Today, God has placed us in different parts of this country, in different parts of the world, and he's given to us his word, he's given to us the message that he wants to be taken to every nation, tongue, and people. May we be faithful in our local churches and in the communities that our churches are placed in that we would take the message and share it with those who have not heard that Jesus can come soon. To view more episodes in this series on the Reformation, go to lineagejourney.com. Let's listen to a song brought to us by Sandra Enterman. Let the lower lights be burning. Brightly beams our Father's mercy From His lighthouse evermore But to us He gives the keeping
This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.